This is Suburban Underground with Drew and Steve on Bedford 105.1. This is a bonus episode, but not a Steve solo bonus episode. This is an interview that Drew and I conducted with drummer Hugo Burnham, who was a member of Gang of Four for their first three albums. This interview was recorded almost four full years ago, and sadly, it's been neglected. But now, we dusted it off, and we finally produced it and included some excerpts of songs from his career interspersed within the interview. Sincere apologies to Hugo for how long it's taken us to put this out. He dedicated at least an hour, probably more like an hour and a half of his day to us back four years ago. And we feel bad that it took so long for us to get this out. But without further ado, here is the Suburban Underground interview with Hugo Burnham. to focus kind of on your beginning with the band. So I want to go back to 1977 and you were studying English Lit at Leeds University. Mm-hmm. Can you set the scene for us? What what was it like in 77 right around the time you were studying Lit and all this music was yeah, happening? Um, yeah, I, England was pretty bleak at the time. You know, the, the economy was shot. You know, people were angry there were places where trash wasn't getting picked up there was a lot of anger and dissatisfaction you know it was a pre the rise of thatcher mm-hmm. people were on strike you know it was a fractious time and i was uh, i went up to leeds university which is in yorkshire which in england uh, the between the north and south it's a very you know it's like the north and south here in a way so about 40 miles up the M1 was the first, M1 being the first motorway. Yeah. Going from London up to Leeds. Although I don't think it went that far when it was first built, but the point was to go all the way up north. And uh, Watford Gap, that was the first service station where you stopped for gas and tea, beans on toast. And things like that. <laughs> I mean, Watford Gap was really sort of like the Mason-Dixon line of England. Down south was all sort of, you know, government and toffs and middle-class people yeah and up north with a good working-class northerners where you know it was the industrial north now that's a not true because you know of course all over england there were upper middle and working-class people but there was that divide yeah um, between north and south that was felt socially certainly so you know leeds typified a sort of town versus gown divide it was familiar in you know almost any city that had a university or a well, college wasn't quite the same thing as university, but then. And uh, so the town was full of academics and not all from up north where it's grim. Not only were we fucking students, <laughs> we were fucking southerners as well. So huge culture difference, but I loved it. Leeds was fantastic. But yeah, fractious. And uh, the university was, it was a large engineering medical school and, uh, yeah, when I first got there, I was, you know, playing rugby and all this, which lasted about six weeks because they're all sort of jocks to the max. And 
it was all not really what I wanted to do because um, playing rugby all the time and getting drunk and standing on tables singing with my trousers around my ankles, I thought, I'm not going to get many girls like this. <laughs> <laughs> so English lit was the way to get the girls, though. Well, actually, theatre. And also just finding the crowd that I fell in with, which was the fine arts crowd, which were very much to the left of everyone else socially. You know, they men would dance together. They'd have short hair and straight trousers, which was unusual at the time. And uh, it was very sort of arty punk, pre-punk, punk, you know, pro-punk, whatever. So what were you listening to? What was your crowd listening to versus what everybody else on campus was listening to? Um, a lot of reggae, a lot of funk, black music, you know, and all the things we all talk about that we were listening to before that, everything from Alice Cooper to Lou Reed, Bowie, of course, but a lot of reggae, dub reggae, as well as pop reggae that was in, almost in everyone's lives there. I mean, that was a thing about growing up in England at that time. Musically, we were very much more integrated. I think so many Americans were, you know, reggae was on the charts. It was around us all the time. It was sort of normal. So, you know, it was listening to lots of things. Dr. Feelgood, Free, stuff like that, very sort of uh, hard-faced elemental music, you know, blues-based music like that. Those are the things that we had in common that drew us together. That and drinking and dancing. I think you had a, maybe a little bit different musical tastes already, you know, when you were in high school than probably most people had. A, yes a- and no. I mean, you know, I loved all the glitter stuff, you know, Bowie, Roxy. T-Rex, although, as I think I've said before in other places, you know, the cool kids like me, we, we had T-Rex at home, but we didn't bring it to school because that was teeny bottom music. I read that you booked Genesis to play your high school. Is that right? We Yeah. We, when I was, I think I turned 15, maybe 16, 15, we got a new headmaster. The old headmaster was very old school English public school. So the headmaster used to play rugby for England. Each gap, it was very sort of progressive who moved into town, the antithesis of the first guy, a lovely man, and whose son is a lifelong friend of mine to this day. And we wanted to do concerts. So I think the first concert that we put on, that was all student-run, with oversight, was Comus, a sort of folk rock band called Comus. And we went from there to Genesis, Barclay James Harvest, Ducks Deluxe. How big was Genesis at the time when you kids booked well, them for your school? it was a few months after Nursery Crime had come out. And Phil Collins had been in the band maybe a year, less than a year. And, you know, they played for like £120. <laughs> it was really cool. Were you drumming at that point? Yeah, yeah. We had a school band. And the guitar player, Jay Stapley, is still, he plays at Mike Oldfield now. He's been around for years. Very respected player and teacher and producer. See, I was drumming, but then when I went into my last year, I sold my drum kit. So I've got to be serious about my A-level exams. So I sold the drum kit that I painted silver by that point because uh, that was the colour of Woody Woodman's kit from the Spiders. <laughs> it looked cool. Um, and then didn't play again until I got to university and uh, just hanging out. And then John and Andrew said, oh, we're, you know, we're starting a band. We're going to get better. Oh, I'm a drummer. Oh, Right, you have to show us. And I didn't have a kit, so there was this other guy called Speedy something or other, who was a rugby player, had a drum kit. Terrible drummer, but nice guy. I think I said, <laughs> I'll buy your kit for £50. I, I think I still owe him £25. <laughs> you know, oh, I'll pay you next week. Um, so I got that and went to an audition in Andy's basement apartment. And I, I guess there was no one else because... <laughs> 
you know, I was in. <laughs> How long had you played before that? Was there a few years or? When I was a kid, when I was at prep school, I played a snare drum in my, my little school orchestra, which was snare drum, timpani and recorders. And I probably had my kit at home for about three years, you know, 14, 15, 16. Then I got rid of it. So I hadn't played for a couple of years and then just started again. So for the people out there who are listening to this podcast, we, I know we're going to get people who are Gang of Four fans, but Gang of Four was such an influential band, I think you can make the case in large part because of Hugo Burnham's drumming. The rhythm, your rhythm and the bass playing really drove that band. And so to hear you say, oh, I just played for a couple of years before getting into this band is well, yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, it, I cannot take credit for all of it any more than... Oh, no, not all of it. But just take credit for... Because we did argue and fight and push and, you know, prod and direct each other a lot. And, you know, Andy Gill has been heard to say he made up all the drum lines. He didn't. But without Andy Gill pushing me the way he did, I would not have played like that. Hmm. Between us is what I came up with. And also, when you play with songs like that, you know, when, when we're working things out together and playing with Dave, you know, you fall into a sort of natural rhythm section mm. vibe off each other. And particularly as we went along, when Dave, who was really the only real musician amongst us, who'd been playing for years in sort of cover bands and jazz bands and, you know, Sunday brunch bands, you know, he really knew how to play and he knew a lot of notes. And at first he would play a lot of notes, but he got it very quickly that we didn't want a lot of notes. He got the whole beef heart thing. He was, you know, he listened to a lot of really good stuff. So he, it's like, okay, yeah, space, free. It's like dub reggae and free having common. It's like it's the space you don't yeah. feel as vital. <clears throat> Whatever you play is influenced by what you're listening to and hearing. And uh, we all steal, but it's what you do with it, I think, that matters. Dave Allen, by the way, for those listening, is the bass player, phenomenal bassist. And the two of you being the rhythm section, you drive so many of the songs, and there's so much funk in Gang of Four. curious about that given what you just said about what you listened to you guys were coming up at the almost the dawn of hip-hop and there was a lot of you know funk in the 70s stuff. what were there particular things that you love that you incorporated or was it just sort of being in this atmosphere of all this different music that just sort of got absorbed accounted for a lot but i mean again i'll draw on the commonality of music that we all listen to and love which really did speak to where we were going i mean you know, bouncing around a square between free, Dr. Feelgood, Funkadelic, um, dub reggae, you know, Hendrix, obviously, from one, one corner of us. Um, just bouncing around in, with those things, you know. I don't know how familiar you are with Dr. Feelgood, but that was just really stark, hard, elemental R&B, and I don't mean R&B the way that people talk about R&B contemporarily, but rhythm and blues, the coasters, that Mm. was rhythm and blues. (laughs) So go and listen to early Dr. Feelgood, if you haven't, to get what was driving us and what excited us.
like that, and you know, things like the Clash, you know, you know it's exciting. You don't need to be Pink Floyd or Genesis or, you know, to play lots of notes to be able to rise up and out and make some interesting noise to say interesting things. And you know, it's just challenging, really, rather than following along, because following along is sort of easy and a little boring. If you challenge yourself musically and lyrically, which I can't take any credit for other than it's her factory, which is me and John, it seems there's another accusation about a musician culturally appropriating somebody else's somebody's you know style nothing else to whine about (laughs) It's, it's a real odd one because one wants to listen to and understand and appreciate what matters to and i hear i'm at the risk of sounding patronizing young people so i work with i'm a college professor i've been doing this for 18 years To find, as an older person, the middle ground between being, oh, don't be so fucking silly and naive, and, okay, this this may not have mattered to me, or I think what mattered to me at 20 was more important. But I also remember when I was 20, people in their 50s and 60s thought I was being stupid and naive. (laughs) But an obsession with things like triggering and cultural appropriation is like, dear God, everything is cultural appropriation. You know, when people start complaining, oh, well, you're white and you're a sushi chef. I see these conversations going on in the media and amongst people. It's just like, fuck me. Does he make good sushi? (laughs) And I'm, I'm really not being facetious about it. You know, with all the things. And yes, cultural appropriation is a thing. Microaggressions are a thing. But they should not, we should not hide our heads in the sand. And you have to deal with it. I don't think that's healthy for developing any sort of emotional strength or rational thinking. Yeah, it seems with music too, there's just, there's so many influences. I mean, you can't separate it. You know, I've, I've been in terrific contretemps with people. Oh, you know, Lady Gaga's useless. She doesn't do anything that Madonna didn't do. It's like, well, okay, maybe. I disagree, but okay. But the people who are listening to her, people in their teens, 20s, Madonna's a grandmother. <laughs> she doesn't mean anything to them, you know? So it's new to them. It's exciting to them. She's speaking to them. So shut up. <laughs> I've never seen so many old people get so vicious online about an artist as they do about Ed Sheeran. Yeah. 
And I mean, somebody might say, oh, and he's just not, he's not even cute. It's like, really? <laughs> That's why he's no good? Have you listened to yourself? When did you become your grandmother? Right. I don't like it. I don't get it. But don't say he's shit, he's talentless, he's ugly. It's like, wow, you sound like 14-year-old girls. <laughs> are there musicians now that you listen to that you think are really great? Do you trying to stay current? Or do you mostly just stick to stuff that was big when you were growing up? I'm not nearly as current, nor do I try to stay as current. Dave Allen is obsessive and freakishly on top of everything. I mean, but it's his business. He's always been like that, and that's brilliant. I hear things. I hear about things. I pay attention. Having a teenage daughter in my life, <laughs> who's now 18, but, you know, the car radio was not in my control for at least five or six years. <laughs> so I heard a lot of pop music that I otherwise wouldn't have heard, and really it made me more thoughtful and smart and open to stuff because taking other concerts, like I'm probably the only 62-year-old man you'll ever speak to who's seen One Direction three times. <laughs> and they're really good. They are very, very good at what they do. Pink is one of the best live shows I've ever seen. Fantastic artist, great performer, you know, which I'd never done or bothered to or thought about had I not been under my daughter's musical spell. It's a good thing, you know. Hugo, this is Steve. I have a confession to make. When I first got into Gang of Four, when I was a freshman in college in the early 80s, I actually got into their album Hard, which is after you had left the band. Okay, I'm ending this interview. <laughs> <laughs> but I went back and I found their earlier stuff. And looking back now, it really seems like the stuff that you and Dave worked on was different. It had a different sound to it more of a minimalist sound. It's yeah. very difficult. It's not like Dave and I left and they changed. Causation, correlation, all that bollocks. The band was changing, developing. This book is coming out very soon, written by Jim Dooley, a Canadian music writer, which really goes, look how, look at that. All that about Gang of Four. <laughs> for, for our listeners, that's a, a very thick book called A History of Gang of Four. Red Set's A History of Gang of Four. And there's really nothing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, there's a lot of rock and roll, but <laughs> it, it's that thick without all that stuff. So this is a really interesting read that really gets into the music, everything around it, what drove it, what it drove, how we drove each other. And, you know, I was kicked out before they recorded hard. Um, there were a lot of circumstances with them at the time that drove the record to be the way it was. It's more poppy. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but not even successfully, I don't think. And I, you know, I adore John. He's one of my greatest friends. And I think it was a very poor Gang of Four record, uh, driven by anything other than the things that had driven us to make the first three albums. By then, Dave had already left. Dave left before I did, yeah. Left middle of 81. So I have a, another question. So Dave went and formed Shriekback, and then he brought you in as a, um, was it a tour manager? Okay, so I'd left Gang of Four. I'd spent a year with playing with another band with the guitar player from Japan and a couple of other guys. Illustrated Man? Yeah. And then that, that you know, that sort of fell apart. And I was doing some tour management. My brother was actually working for a management company that had Shriekback and uh, Blamange and one or two other things. And Jolyon, my brother, was supposed to take Shriekback to Europe on a week long tour. And he had to go to America with Julian Cope. That's what it was. He had to go to America with Julian Cope. And he, he said, would you tour manage him? And I said, yeah, of course. Be great. Lovely. I'd done some tour management, you know, for other acts. 
So I went, and after, and this is, oh, and this is after I've been playing with ABC as well as a session drummer. And within two days of each other, ABC had changing from their manager, who had ironically been Gang of Four's first manager. And they got an American manager, but they wanted somebody to look after Europe and be this. And they said, "Would you do it? Because you know you've been drumming with us, but you're really on top of things. You smart, sensible. We like you. Would you look after us in Europe?" And it's like, "Oh, fuck at me." Okay. The next day, Streetwreck said, "Okay, we're dumping our manager, and we got this big tour of America coming up, and we're trying to get out of our deal with Arista. And would you manage us?" And it was just I had to go with Streetwreck. ABC were lovely, but they're all sort of rather clean and well-behaved, <laughs> unlike Shriekback. It was sort of like the Visigoths again. It was like mad, mad on the road, but God, they were a great band. Was that the tour with Simple Minds, 1985? Yeah. I saw one of those shows in Poughkeepsie, New York. Yeah, it was fantastic. We had such a good time. We, we were out for about two and a half, about three months, doing shows with Simple Minds and on our own. So yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, that was a good show. So what's your preference, drumming or managing? Drumming. I love managing, you know, same as I love doing A&R because it was being around creative people, but with a safety net of like the drummer in Spinal Tap, you know, nobody was going to blow me up. So many musicians are not good at business, willfully so and stupidly so at the time. So mm. I, I liked sort of trying to bring some sense and responsibility into their lives, and making sure that somehow the best was going on for them because so many are clueless about business, or worse, they're clueless about business but think they know what they're doing. You know, like a lot of musicians, oh, I can make a pop song, so I should be directing the video too. It's like, no, not really. But, you know, it, it, it's all about people management, really. How do you get the best out of the business and the art and try to mix the two? And it was difficult because my last year with Gang of Four, that's what I was doing. While John and Andrew were mostly writing songs of the free, I was managing the band until we got the new manager. And it was difficult because I had a better grasp of what, the, what it took. You, know, you don't just make a phone call to get something done. Even before then, even, I mean, early days of Gang of Four, when we weren't actually touring or recording, I spent a lot of time hanging out at a record company or companies, EMI when we were in London, at Warner Brothers when we were in the States, or our agents, you know, just absorbing it and listening and watching, you know. Is that how that came about? I mean, did you develop those skills that way or did you just have a natural affinity well, for it? I developed a comfort with it. I don't have any real skills at management, but I was comfortable doing it. And I think I did a pretty good job. I just want to go back yeah. real quick to the uh, Illustrated Man Supergroup. So mm -hmm. you guys put out an EP... Listen up. 
What happened with that? How come it didn't last longer? Well, it was a fairly dissolute group of people. Um, we did one tour of the States a little bit too early, really. Nobody at EMI really was into the band, the A&R guy that signed them was, but, you know, it was that period where, are we still Duran Duran or are we uh, the Reflex or, you know, it was all a bit stylized. I never felt completely comfortable with it, but I made a lifelong friend of Rob Dean, the guitar player, and it, it was sort of fun, but there was some dysfunction. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> it was definitely much more pop-oriented. Very poppy. Mm-hmm. Very poppy. Uh, and it was even popular before they got me in. And I did my best to sort of bring some thump to it. But it was a very frustrating recording thing because we did it with a guy called John Porter, who'd done some great work with Roxy Music earlier there, but he was obsessed with the Lynn drum. You're a nemesis. Oh, dear me. You can you can edit that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Lynn drum was, it was the guitarist's best friend when they didn't want to deal with the drummer. <laughs> but it led to a lot of... Uh, noodling by producers and guitar players and a lot of wasted time and money in a lot of studios everywhere. Because they wanted you to play that precisely? Well, yeah, oh, here, 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 here's this beat. It's like, I'm not a fucking octopus. Um, or that's too fiddly, but, oh, yeah, but it sounds good because I can fiddle. You know, you don't actually have to play it. You know, like anything, technology is wonderful when it's a tool, but not when it's a crutch. So you mentioned Duran Duran, and I want to get back because there's a little bit of little bit of a history there. But I want to I want to start with At Home He Feels Like a Tourist, which is just it's on your first album on Entertainment, a fantastic song. And for our listeners who don't know the story, and I know you get asked that's a lot in interviews, can you recount the Top of the Pops happening there? Yeah, I will. Top of the Pops is the British equivalent, I guess, of American Bandstand. It was a weekly show. It was the chart show. Everybody in the country watched it on Thursday nights. It was a family affair, and uh, it was it's what you grew up seeing people on. So the single was released before the album. You know, we'd recorded it in March. It came out in April or May or something like that. And it was actually getting up there because we'd had a lot of good press. People, you know, it's like, okay, Gang of Four, next big thing, you know. Joe Jackson and the Gang of Four at the end of uh, 78, you know, all the newspapers. This is what's coming. These are the next big things, you know. So we did this single, At Home is a Tourist, and the refrain included the lines, and the rubbers you hide in your top left pocket when you go out dancing to a disco, you know. So we got onto the BBC, and uh, there was some arcane musicians' union rules whereby weren't supposed to have recorded music replay recorded music on television. So there was a deal worked out where you'd have to go and re-record the song in three hours in a session to bring to the TV station that you'd recorded just for them. So that fulfilled the live music thing because it wasn't the recorded version, if that makes any sense. So we did that. We did it all before. We went there and uh, the producer there said, oh, I don't like this rubbers thing. That's not good. You need to change the lyric. Because that's, you know, it's rude. <laughs> Rubbers. Condoms. <laughs> so we all went off to the pub, and our A&R guy and John, the singer, went off. And we said, right, we're going, okay, we'll change the We won't use the word rubbers. We'll use the word packets. Right. The packets you hide. Nothing offensive, right? So we went and did that, just quickly changed it over, brought it back. And then we were rehearsing. 
cameras and all this. And then suddenly the producer said, no, 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 we want you to change it. Packets isn't good. We want you to say rubbish because then it sounds like rubbers and it won't be like we've made you change the lyric. And essentially we just went, well, no, because that changes the whole meaning. It's not about rubbish. We won't do that. They said, well, you either do it or you're out. So we stood our ground and bravely they kicked us off the show. <laughs> and at the time it was, yeah, right on, you know. You know, we're not giving in. This is wrong, you know, standing for freedom of speech and the integrity of the music. And we were. And in the short term, it was great. We got lots of press in the music press. Just as we were leaving, off to the pub, having been kicked out half an hour before the show went up, Sniff and the Tears came in and we we were yelling, scab! (laughs) You know, oh, we're going to get on top of the pops. You never thought this would happen. They had a hit because of it. Good for them. Really, as a consequence of that, we absolutely lost EMI's marketing and radio promotion departments. They said, well, if they're not going to do that, why should we bust our hunt for them? And Duran Duran was up and coming behind us. They were the pop darling gods that a record company wanted. We were difficult. And they they were great at what they did. Good for them. Fantastic. As an adult now, looking back on that decision, I mean, do you ever well, kick I'll, yourself and go, I'll, you know? Simply, I'll simply repeat what John King, one of the most erudite, intelligent, well-read, funniest men I've ever known, said about Gang of Four. We never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the only time that sort of thing happened, but we did, we did seem snake bit after that. And then the next time, with the third album, Songs of the Free, we had our Lover Man in uniform. There's been enough turnover at the BBC and Top of the Pops that they were talking about having us back on. Because that seemed to be bubbling under and coming and saying, yeah, and then Margaret Thatcher went to war with uh, Argentina over the Falkland Islands. And suddenly, no, we can't have anyone talking about soldiers (laughs) and shoot, shoot. We were going to be on Top of the Pops and go up the charts and suddenly, no thank you. Girl, I spent it well. You must be joking. I'm not, you must be joking. 
I did get on top of the pops eventually. None of the others have been. I was on with uh, Samantha Fox. Oh, right. And then two weeks later, I was on with Public Image Limited. <laughs> oh, very nice. Oh, yeah. Going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. And then I was on a couple of times with ABC when I was drumming with them. What did you play on with the PIL? Uh, I, I, I didn't do any recording with them. I was on top of the pops. Bruce Smith and I were on uh, Rise. Someone said, it was, you know, it's Ginger Baker's drum riff, basically. And Public Image Limited here in the Top of the Pop studio, this week's number 11 with Rise. So how did you end up in the United States as a professor? Well, I moved to New York, living in Brooklyn in 1988, summer of 88, because I was just tired of London and I was spending so much time in New York. And I'd always remembered saying to myself, the first time I arrived in June of 79, it's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to live here one day. So I moved over. Got married in 1991. I was working at Island Records and then Imago Records, another label, who moved me, us, to the West Coast to run their office in Los Angeles. And I was there for eight years or so. Went to work for Quest Records for Quincy Jones for three years, doing A&R, which was great. And then I went to EMI Music for two years. And then when that fell apart, my wife at the time was all, she was a publicist. She worked for Virgin Records, A&M. She ran her own house for a while. She worked for Paisley Park. She worked for Prince for a couple of years. And then she was working for Phil Warden's, like Capricorn. And they were going to move us both down to Atlanta. He wanted me to do publishing for him, but then we fell out over a band I was managing. And Phil Warden, genius, but really difficult, difficult man. So, you know, I said something that pissed him off. So suddenly we were up, looks like you're out of a job. <laughs> Pixar reference there, if anyone remembers it. Yeah. So we'd sold our house and it, we couldn't move to Atlanta. It's like, oh, well, let's just go back to Gloucester for the winter and see what's happened next because my ex's parents lived here. So we came back and uh, we were managing for a year or so. And then I ran into John Lay, who was an old English friend of mine. He used to manage Squeeze in Boston at Nemo, which was Boston's version then of South by Southwest or the New Music Seminar. And it's like, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, what are you doing here? So, he said, I'm teaching at a college. He said, no, I am. It's great. I teach all these kids about, about the music industry. He said, I just stand there and tell stories. It's great. I said, oh, maybe I could do that. Oh, you should come over to the school. I'll introduce you to the guy who runs it. So I did. In September of 2000, he had me teaching a music industry class. And a year later, I went back to teach two of them. And suddenly, they found themselves short of English teachers. So I rushed up to the uh, chair of the general education department said oh hello my name's hugo i'm english i'm a teacher <laughs> so i ended up teaching english and then went from there to you know because i had a, actually had a degree and could be a real teacher and they offered me a full-time job a year later started a whole new sub department uh, called freshman seminar which i called growing up 101 and they asked me to get my master's and i said yes if you pay for it and they said yes so i got my master's degree and that's what it's been like ever since I teach at a college called Endicott College up on here on the North Shore of Massachusetts. I've been teaching there as an adjunct for 10 years, um, and I'm just teaching one class at Emerson at the moment in Boston. 
you know, and you, as a culture, it's, again, going back to my point earlier about being triggered by certain social situations or words or phrases, it's like you go to university, you go into higher education to be challenged and to challenge your own conceptions and to broaden your mind, not narrow cast what you're exposed to and what you're learning about. Again, while I understand things that are important change with generations, there's also a little bit of, you know, this is not the hill to die upon. Whether or not you can, for instance, in a classroom, when you're talking about culture, you whether or not you can quote a Jay-Z song that uses the word in it, um, and then to find that's not allowed, you can't say it. And I, I find that a challenge. Not to trigger you, but... But that sounds like a rather old-fashioned, conservative way of talking about education. <laughs> that I sound conservative? In that context. Quite the opposite. Um, conservatism is narrowing the exposure to ideas, the exposure to differences, and facing up to things that you're not comfortable with. Well, I think in the U.S. today, when the, you have this dichotomy regarding higher education, it's typically the people on the right of center who are making that argument about free speech and expression and um, and the well, openness to ideas. Argument, but that's not what they mean. When people on the right are doing it, they're saying because traditionally our ideas have been poor, so they've been basically trodden down upon, but we want free expression to be able to say poor things. Thinking of uh, political speech, your your lyrics... I know you didn't write these lyrics for the most part, but but King of Four's lyrics, you have so many great political songs, Contract, Capital, Guns Before Butter, He'd Send in the Army, To Hell with Poverty, all these fantastic songs. I mean, your albums are just full of provocative lyrics. Yeah, they, from yeah, Provocative and thoughtful and making you, we were challenging and questioning our, the status quo around us and imploring people to do the same. What are you actually being told? What is actually coming at you through the media, be it advertising or be it your teachers or your parents or any form of authority that generally is reactionary? Question that. Question authority. Question the status quo. Why do you think like that? What, what, why do you consider this to be the norm? Just because you've been told it or because? One last question to wrap up. So You've got too far away from rock and roll. No, no, it's great. We wanted to get the whole Hugo Burnham picture here, and this has been fantastic. You called me a conservative. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to trigger you. Maybe it worked a little Ooh, bit. Touche. <laughs> um, so you drum, you teach, you've still got a lot to say. What's the next phase? Are we going to hear more music put out by Hugo Burnham? I'd love to say yes, because I really want to play again and start playing again. But I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm not teaching full time. I'd love to be working full time somewhere in higher education because I'm comfortable with it. I'm good at it. I like being part of, God, it sounds awful. I love being part of young people's lives because I remember it and I don't look down on them like a lot of people. Again, that whole thing of, oh, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, they're so lazy and stupid. No, they're not. They're fantastic. And as much as I think it's our job to challenge, but allow ourselves to be challenged by them too. You can't dismiss them. You've got to listen. And that's mm. definitely how I run my classes, the few that I teach now. I don't want to not be busy. And I would love to make music again, but that's very much down to who you do it with. I mean, you know, I've done other things, but never, ever, ever was it as rewarding and as creative for me 
outside working with those three. However much we fought and argued and have fallen out and fallen back in again and I have my drums. I have my sticks. I have too many damn drums. I've got to start selling some so I can eat. All right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Hugo. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Underground. Underground.